0: Welcome to the Charleston Time Machine. I'm Nick Butler, historian at the Charleston County Public Library. Today we're going to continue our short series about obscure events in Charleston in mid-April 1775 that represent the first sparks of the American Revolution in South Carolina. In last week's cliffhanger, we were listening in on a committee meeting of the colony's rebellious shadow government when they were interrupted by the unexpected arrival of breaking news from Britain. Let's return to that scene on Broad Street, rewind our time machines, and pull up a chair at the beginning of that important meeting. At five o'clock in the afternoon of Wednesday, April 19th, 1775, the small band of gentlemen forming the Charleston General Committee of South Carolina's new Provincial Congress convened their weekly meeting at Charles Ramage's Tavern at the northeast corner of Broad and Church Streets. The principal item on their agenda was to discuss the latest London news of early February, which had arrived in Charleston on April 14th in the royal packet boat Swallow. King George and Parliament had just authorized the deployment of a massive military force to pressure rebellious Americans into obeying the will of British authority. Hopes for a peaceful resolution to the year long political crisis were now rapidly evaporating in Charleston and elsewhere in the colonies. In this atmosphere of high anxiety, the leaders of South Carolina's nascent shadow government must have longed for more information. The difficult decisions before them teetered on the balance of breaking news from London and Boston, which took many weeks to cross the Atlantic to Charleston. Shortly after their meeting had commenced, however, the general committee was interrupted by news that one of the king's official mail-carrying ships had just arrived in port. The packet boat Le Dispenser had sailed from Falmouth on March 13th and, after a very rapid passage of only 37 days, arrived in Charleston in the late afternoon of April 19th. John Drayton, in his 1821 Memoirs of the American Revolution, which were based on the notes of his father, William Henry Drayton, tells us that the Charleston General Committee adjourned its meeting immediately after learning of the arrival of the packet boat, so that intelligence received by her, the packet, might be known and digested. That brief, simple statement of fact belies a host of assumptions, however, so let's pause to unpack its meaning. In the Atlantic world of the 18th century, it was customary for ship captains to carry newspapers from one port to the next and to share them with the clientele at a tavern or coffeehouse of his choice this practice transformed drinking establishments in port towns like Charleston into hubs of local conversations about broad matters of business and politics. In 1775, Ramage's Tavern at the corner of Broad and Church Streets was the town's most popular watering hole and the primary meeting place for liberty-minded Charlestonians. It's possible, therefore, that the arrival of William Pond Captain of the packet boat Le Dispenser at Ramage's Tavern in the late afternoon of April 19th triggered the general committee to adjourn their meeting. If the members of that committee sought to learn the latest news from London from the latest newspapers in the captain's possession, they had only to walk downstairs to the tavern's main bar room to find Captain Pond. In Charleston on April 19th, 1775, the latest newspapers from London covered the latter half of February and a bit of early March. This material included details of a conciliatory resolution introduced by Prime Minister Frederick North on February 20th and adopted by the British Parliament on February 27th. Although Lord North intended the resolution to diffuse American resentment over recent disciplinary actions adopted by Parliament, colonists from Boston to Savannah formed a very different interpretation. The conciliatory resolution to angry Americans was simply too little too late. It was a haughty, patronizing attempt to assuage American protests while still holding a rather large loaded gun to their collective colonial heads. To most Americans, including those in Charleston, It was difficult to reconcile Parliament's true position. In early February, Parliament had ordered additional military forces across the Atlantic to intimidate American colonists, but then two weeks later, it offered a saccharine olive branch to soften the impending martial blow. At that moment, the patriotic men gathered at Ramage's Tavern desperately wanted insight into the British government's true intentions. If the answers they sought could not be found in the public newspapers, then perhaps they would have to look to the private government correspondence just delivered from the packet boat Le Dispenser to the post office on East Bay Street. In other words, desperate times called for desperate measures. After sundown on the evening of Wednesday, April 19th, three members of the Charleston General Committee convened on East Bay Street, William Henry Drayton, Thomas Corbett, and John Neville. Their objective was simple. To satisfy their desperate desire for more information, these upstanding citizens were prepared to contravene the rule of law, to use force to intercept the British government's private correspondence. Political tension with Britain had escalated to the point where illegal activity seemed justified. In the parlance of later warfare, they embarked on a covert mission to intercept enemy intelligence. Their target was South Carolina's only post office, which occupied a small portion of the first floor of a three-story brick building that once stood at the north corner of East Bay Street and Longitude Lane. Since the summer of 1768, the widow Mary Stevens had operated a coffee house downstairs with accommodations for eight guests upstairs. Her young son, Jarvis Henry Stevens, better known as Henry Stevens, helped with the family business when he wasn't teaching harpsichord, and he also served as the secretary to His Majesty's Deputy Postmaster General for the Southern District of North America, Mr. George Rupel. Postmaster Rupel, a well-established Tory placeman in Charleston, collected a salary from the king, but 25-year-old Henry Stevens did all the work in the post office. After dark on the evening of April 19th, Postal Secretary Henry Stevens was inside the post office, alone, assorting the letters, as he later remembered, that had just arrived in the packet boat Le Dispenser from England. Stevens wrote his own description of this event 45 years later, so we don't know precisely what words were exchanged on that night. I'll wager, however, that it sounded something like this. There was a knock at the door. The post office is closed, Stevens announced. Never mind that, came a voice from the street. We've come for the mail. Come back tomorrow, replied Stevens. Open the door, demanded the voice or we'll break it down by force. Stevens again refused, and there was a moment of silence. Suddenly there was a clamor as someone outside began forcing open a window and making threats. Arms and legs appeared inside the window, and Stevens panicked, fearing an escalation of violence and exposing the letters and papers of the office unnecessarily, he later wrote, and the door in question being only a slight one. Stevens quickly acquiesced. As he later confessed, I did open the door and admit those gentlemen. William Henry Drayton, Thomas Corbett, and John Neville were now inside the post office face to face with Henry Stevens. As Thomas Corbett later recalled, we demanded the mail, and Stevens peremptorily, that is, haughtily refused it. Corbett said, we, as peremptorily, demanded it again, declaring that we would take it by force, if not delivered quickly, having authority for that purpose. Henry Stevens replied, saying, you might as well do as you pleased, but that he would not deliver it. We'll never know if there were blows exchanged, or if there was any sort of a physical struggle. In his version of the event, Thomas Corbett simply stated, we then took possession of it, the mail. For his part, Stevens recalled that the three intruders selected all the public documents and took them away. This small statement is important because it confirms that the target of the post office raid was the correspondence from government or public officials in Britain to government or public officials in Charleston. Today, we would call this material private correspondence, but in 1775, they called it public correspondence in the same way the British phrase public school refers to what Americans would call a private school. After taking the mail by force, William Henry Drayton, Thomas Corbett, and John Neville fled the post office and took their swag to a private location. Corbett later stated that they took the mail to the State House to a meeting of the General Committee, but I'm convinced that his memory was skipping forward one day. Rather, I think it's likely that the three men went directly to one of their own houses, or perhaps to a back room at Ramage's Tavern, and opened the stolen mail that night in private. Imagine yourself in their shoes for just a moment, behind locked doors nervously looking outside to see if Henry Stevens had alerted the town night watch of their crime. Candles lighted, wax seals broken, and stiff papers unfolded. What did they find? Among the public documents pilfered from the post office on the evening of April 19th were several letters from William Legg, the Earl of Dartmouth, who served as Britain's Secretary of State for the Colonies, addressed to each of the governors of the southern colonies. These letters included a copy of Parliament's conciliatory resolution of February 27th, but they did not contain information that we might classify as secret. Nevertheless, it was Dartmouth's condescending tone that apparently proved to be the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. In his letter to William Bull, Lieutenant Governor of South Carolina, for example, Lord Dartmouth dispassionately stated that the British House of Commons had adopted the conciliatory resolution with a sizable majority of votes. This fact gave ample evidence of the supremacy of Parliament, said Dartmouth, and should, quote, convince them, the Americans, that there neither can nor will be any of the least relaxation from those measures which that rebellious conduct has made indispensably necessary for reducing the colonies to a state of due obedience to the constitutional authority of Parliament, end quote. In other words, the British government had committed its military might to the objective of crushing American resistance. The time for appeals and negotiations had passed. This was a declaration of war. The next day, Thursday, April 20th, the General Committee of South Carolina's Provincial Congress convened at Ramage's Tavern at four in the afternoon for their appointed weekly meeting. Their president, Colonel Charles Pinckney, called the meeting to order, and the secretary, Peter Timothy, read a summary of the latest news from Britain. The London newspapers brought yesterday in the royal packet boat contained confusing, even contradictory, evidence of the current mindset of British government. Warships filled with fresh troops were embarking for the colonies, but Parliament was offering a confusing, conciliatory resolution. Peace was possible, but only if the American colonies disunited and negotiated individually with the mother country. We have no minutes from this meeting, but we can imagine that opinions and interpretations were freely exchanged. At some point, however, one of the three male thieves— Most likely, the eminent William Henry Drayton held up a handful of letters written by the Earl of Dartmouth and declared that the time for discussion had ended. The official letters from the Earl of Dartmouth, intended for each of the governors of the southern colonies, had been intercepted in a covert operation, and their content revealed Britain's true intentions. Before his untimely death in 1779, William Henry Drayton began making notes about his participation in the early days of the American Revolution as a sort of journal for a future history of the war. These notes, along with the Earl of Dartmouth's letters stolen from the post office, passed to Drayton's son, John Drayton, who used them to assemble his Memoirs of the American Revolution. In that publication, Drayton recalled the meeting of the General Committee on April 20, 1775, at which the gentlemen of Charleston discussed the latest news and letters from London, delivered the previous day by the packet boat Le Dispenser. Britain's contemptuous attitude towards the American situation was now utterly irreconcilable with the interests or the politics of the colony of South Carolina. These things were too obvious not to be seen at first sight. Drayton said. The general committee, therefore, did not enter into any public deliberation as to these measures or to the conciliatory plan, choosing to demonstrate their sentiments thereon by acts rather than by votes. And without forming any resolution, it was understood in the general committee that the public military stores should be immediately seized into the hands of the people. Let's pause for a moment to reflect on the meaning of that statement. On the afternoon of Thursday, April 20, 1775, the Whig Patriots of Charleston, assembled in a committee representing the nucleus of South Carolina's rebellious shadow government, collectively decided to commit a large-scale act of treason. To prevent the agents of British authority in South Carolina from using force to suppress American resistance, they resolved to effect a preemptive strike. After all, our acting governor, William Bull, had not received the Earl of Dartmouth's intercepted letter, which confirmed the British government's determination to use force to reduce the colonies to a state of due obedience. By stealing the government-owned muskets, cutlasses, ammunition, and gunpowder in the Charleston area, the rebellious leaders hoped to defuse the threat of violence before local authorities had a chance to prepare. On the 20th of April, there was no need for debate or discussion. The time for action had arrived. To set the wheels of revolution in motion, Colonel Charles Pinckney, president of the South Carolina Provincial Congress, on the spot appointed a secret committee at its meeting in Charleston on January 16th, that Congress had authorized its president to create a secret committee if circumstances warranted such an action, quote, to procure and distribute such articles as the present insecure state of the interior parts of this colony renders necessary for the better defense and security of the good people of these parts and for other necessary purposes, end quote. Colonel Pinckney immediately nominated William Henry Drayton to lead the secret committee and invited Drayton to choose his own crew. He first picked planters Arthur Middleton and Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, then added William Gibbs and Edward Wayman, quote, the one having many schooners and stores, which might be depended on upon occasion, and the other being active in confidential services, end quote. President Pinckney approved Drayton's choices and instructed the secret committee to form a plan of action. By this authority, recalled John Drayton, the committee became possessed of the most important powers, nothing more or less than an unlimited power in placing the colony in a posture of defense. The story you've just heard encompasses a 24-hour period that I believe is critically important to the history of South Carolina. Despite the significance of this story, however, it is not a fixed part of the traditional narrative of how the state rebelled against Great Britain. The mail-stealing episode of April 19, 1775, is mentioned in some, but certainly not all, of the published histories of South Carolina's revolutionary experience. Of the few history books that do mention the Charleston events of April 19th, you'll find the facts garbled or presented quite a bit differently from my reconstruction of the scene. Why? Because two of the four participants in that event, namely Jarvis Henry Stevens and Thomas Corbett, later wrote down their respective flawed memories of that night at the post office. Both accounts contain some mistakes of chronology, and later historians, including John Drayton, either repeated their misremembered cues or chose to ignore the event altogether. As a person who enjoys solving historical puzzles, I've spent a lot of time analyzing and contemplating what I like to call the historiographic conundrum surrounding the mail stealing episode of April 19, 1775. I realize that not everyone enjoys the minutia of unpicking such knots, however, so I'm going to offer you an optional supplement. I've written a survey of the source documents used in constructing today's story with an explanation of how I arrived at my conclusions. If you're interested in such details, I invite you to point your internet browser to the text version of this program at ccpl.org, where you can read all about it. If you're not interested in that convoluted historiography, well, let's wrap up today's story. Within a 24-hour period in April 1775, the sentiments of South Carolina's political leaders evolved from a state of anxious uncertainty to one of determined resolution. This important mental transformation was fueled by public news and private intelligence brought to Charleston by the Royal Packet Boat on April 19th and intercepted that evening by a small band of gentlemen rebels. Britain had revealed her true intentions to crush the Americans, and war was now inevitable. On the same day that Massachusetts militiamen exchanged fire with British troops at Lexington and Concord, William Henry Drayton, Thomas Corbett, and John Neville saw the rising tide of war coming to Charleston. The intelligence they intercepted proved to be the spark that ignited the first step in armed resistance. On April 20th, South Carolina's shadow government appointed a secret committee to launch a covert preemptive strike to steal the British government's arms and ammunition in Charleston. So, tune in next week when we'll follow the lightning strike of the secret committee on the 21st of April, 1775, as they steal hundreds of weapons and thousands of pounds of gunpowder under the cover of darkness. Will innocent bystanders alert the authorities? Will the royal government launch a violent counterattack? This is good stuff, and it's part of our history. Kevin Cruthers is the executive producer of this program for WYLA at the Charleston County Public Library. CCPL is your home for local history. If you'd like to learn more about our resources, discover upcoming programs, or just explore the Charleston Time Machine, check out the library's website at ccpl.org. Thanks for joining me aboard the Charleston Time Machine. This is Nick Butler. And I'll see you in the future.